Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 11, Varan the Unbelievable Mini-Analysis. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the Cavalier Curator of the Vault, Nathan Marchand. Having survived King Kong Lives last episode by resorting to MST3K-style riffs with kaiju scholar John LeMay, seriously, if I didn't know better, I'd swear the island's board of directors was conducting a sociological experiment on me. I can't imagine anything else being nearly as difficult to sit through. Jimmy, it's too early to talk about next season. We're still in the middle of the conquest. One step at a time. Today, though, listeners, I'll be continuing my series of minor detours in our con coverage by returning to yet another film analyzed by Brian Scherchel after my departure from Kaiju Vision Radio. Link in the show notes to that episode. A film that, if you listen to my buddies over on the Kaiju Apostle, isn't worth the celluloid it was printed on. Yes, I know they said they just didn't want to watch it again. My point is they, like many fans, don't like it. Listeners, I'm talking about Ashira Honda's often overlooked kaiju film, Varan the Unbelievable. Like several other films covered in the minisodes, this was one of several I researched for my independent study on Honda in grad school. Interestingly, it came perilously close to getting the same treatment as Half Human, which you can hear about in episode 7. I'll be focusing on the Japanese version and not the... I don't know what you'd call the American version. It's practically a different movie that just happens to have some of the special effects shots from the original. Like I said about the Americanized cut of Half Human, it makes 1956's Godzilla King of the Monsters look like an Oscar Best Picture nominee by comparison. The American protagonist having a Japanese wife is the only interesting or substantial thing in that version. It spoke to the growing alliance between America and Japan and in some small way denounced racism. Some would call it colonialist, but I think that's giving it more credit than it deserves. Anyway, after my analysis of the film, we'll get to some listener letters I wasn't able to get to last month and some new feedback that's come in since then. Believe it or not, 1958's Varan the Unbelievable, known as Daikaiju Baran in Japan, is a bit of a strange beast. Originally intended to be a two-part television movie for ABPT Pictures, the film division of ABC Television, Honda shot the film in black and white and in the standard 1331 aspect ratio. Because of this, Eiji Tsuburaya took a, quote, budget-conscious approach, end quote, as David Callip put it in A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series, to the film's special effects, assuming they would be seen on low-resolution televisions. Tsuburaya even resorted to using stock footage from Godzilla 1954 and Godzilla Raids again. Unfortunately, the deal with ABPT collapsed during production, and not wanting to waste the footage that had been shot, Toho decided to finish the film for a theatrical release in Japan, which required some awkward cropping and new footage shot in 235.1. It remains the only movie filmed in the so-called Toho Panscope. While the film itself has slowly faded into obscurity, the titular creature retains a small but avid fan base because of its well-constructed suit and unique flying squirrel-inspired design. 
I agree, Jimmy. The monster is too good for this movie. Well, the second half anyway. As I was saying, Kallik contends that Varan combines the, quote, least distinctive characteristics of Godzilla and Rodan to create a by-the-numbers monster movie, end quote. Although he adds it is elevated slightly by the witty dialogue of screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa. Reporter Yuriko Shinjo, played by Ayumi Sonata, along with Horoguchi the Cowardly Photographer, played by Fumito Matsuo, and Professor Kenji Uazaki, played by Kozo Nomura, set out to the remote Tohoku region to investigate the deaths of two men, one of whom was Yuriko's brother. They come to a village that worships a creature called Baradagi, who they say killed those men for trespassing. While this is at first dismissed, they quickly learn the monster is real. Enraged, the creature rises from a lake, destroys the village, and after battling the Japanese military, glides toward Tokyo. This is why Varan is a bit troublesome for the scientists to keep contained on the island. Flying monsters always are. While the film is largely unremarkable, the first half in Iwawa Village is interesting because it touches on the, quote, delicate Barakuman issue, end quote, according to Steve Rifle and Ed Godachewski in Ashura Honda, A Life in Film. The Barakuman, which is a word that means hamlet people or village people, no, Jimmy, not the disco band. Ugh. Listeners, the Barakuman are an outcast social group that has a long history of discrimination because they are at the bottom of the Japanese social order. Baraku means small, generally rural commune or a hamlet, and men means people. According to Viet Huang, quote, the group's name often conjures up associations with being delinquents, uneducated, crime-ridden, violent, and ghetto, end quote. The Japanese caste system dates back to the Edo period, 1603 to 1867, and was derived from Confucian labels, meaning it was defined by birth and not money. The four statuses were, in descending order, warrior rulers or samurai, peasants or farmers, artisans and merchants. Below them were the Barakumen, who were relegated to the dirty jobs of their era. Animal butchering, human burial, gardening, waste removal, guard duty, and leatherwork, or kawata, among others. Such work was considered demeaning and or polluting, so those assigned such tasks were labeled eta, or impure, by feudal Japanese society. With the Meiji Restoration in 1868, the new government abolished the caste system in favor of, quote, the concept of national citizenry, end quote, emancipating the Eta and other outcasts three years later as Shinhaimen, or new commoners. Unfortunately, societal attitudes were slow to change, so the Barakumen continued to face discrimination at jobs, schools, and marriage. It's not unlike the United States. Even after the Emancipation Proclamation, it took many years for racism toward black people to die out. While the Barakumen were politically active during the 1890s, it was after World War II and the U.S. occupation in the 1950s, when Varan was released, that their fight for equality got a shot in the arm with the formation of the Baraku Liberation League, or BLL. This group pressured the Japanese government to acknowledge the issue and make improvements to Barakaman communities through special measures, a program that lasted from 1969 to 2002. Since Japan was in the middle of the economic miracle and experiencing tremendous growth, the government offered subsidies for rent, among other assistance. When the program was discontinued, the government declared the Barakaman problem, quote-unquote, solved. Even so, some still call the Barakumen, quote, Japan's invisible race, end quote, with between two to three million living in the country, approximately one and a half to two percent of the population. 
While the Iwawa villagers in Varan are not directly stated to be Barakaman, their portrayal reflects the stereotypes and attitudes of the time. The Tohoku region, the Tibet of Japan, as Professor Sugimoto, played by Korea Senda, calls it, where the village is located is described as unexplored and secluded, which Rifle and Gorachevsky say were, quote, code words for a Buraku enclave, end quote. Given that most Burakuma communities were in rural areas, it is an easy connection to make. Like the mountain tribe and half-human, some villagers have visible deformities, implying inbreeding, although they are not featured. Toho, ever sensitive to potential controversy, made this the last of their classic science fiction films to be released on VHS in the 1980s, and even then, these lines and scenes were trimmed. It was not until the later DVD release that the uncut film was restored. This progression seems to coincide with increasing equality given to the Barakaman. The film was initially censored on home media at a time when it was still a hot-button issue, but was later restored as discrimination subsided. It helps that Varan's less-than-flattering portrayal of the villagers is mild compared to the band half-human. Thankfully, I was able to procure the uncut version for the vault here on the island, but given its relative rarity, I have to remind Goji-kun and Brokong, the podcast mascots, to be careful with it when they fetch it for me. Now, more pertinently, it is the villagers' backward superstitions that create conflict in the film and potential controversy in reality. This was a common formula for Honda's films and many others at the time. Callet says it, quote, allowed Japanese audiences to vicariously work through cultural fears of the conflict between their old traditional past and the brave new world of modern westernized cities and the calamities that result from that culture clash, end quote. Even the villagers seem torn between cultures since their belief system has shades of Japan's most prominent religions. Peter H. Brothers says in Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men that they are a, quote, Shinto sect worshipping the statue of a monster, despite the looming presence of a Buddha image carved into a nearby mountain, end quote. The masks they wear while praying are similar to the Oni and Tengu masks worn at Shinto festivals, although here they represent Baradagi, a.k.a. Varan. On the other hand, the fence erected around the village that the people dare not cross is a kakai, a Buddhist word used in fiction for a sort of magical force field that could only be penetrated by low-grade demons. It also seems meant to bar humans from passing unless they risk angering Baradagi, since in ancient Japanese folk beliefs, mountains were taboo places and required a certain level of purity in order to enter their domain. Given that the two scientists violated this barrier and were killed by Varan, it is no wonder that Gen's father, the priest, waves branches before the Baradagi idol and prays, quote, Deliver us from your wrath, O God of Baradagi. We did not mean to invade your privacy, O God of Baradagi. Please forgive those that have offended thee, end quote. Kenji, being a man of science, confronts these superstitions head-on with an often condescending attitude that perhaps reflected Japanese society's views of the Barakaman and other minorities. He says, quote, It's ridiculous to believe such a thing, Baradagi, ever existed, end quote. The priest's reply is quick and zealous, quote, Hold your tongue! I refuse to fill my ears with blasphemy, end quote. <laughs> You've had arguments like that with Reverend Mafune, the island's chaplain? I'd pay to see that. Anyway, though, when Gen crosses the Kakai to chase after a dog, he drops his mask, and Honda lets the camera linger on it briefly. 
This could symbolize Gen renouncing the adult superstitions because his love for the dog, which could be seen as a greater good by a child, trumps his fear of Baradagi. The irony is the villagers, including his hysterical mother, are unwilling to cross the barrier to save him. It is here that Kenji expounds on his previous statement in a speech that would make Richard Dawkins proud. Quote, We can never believe such nonsense. This is the 20th century. How can you be so foolish? It's true, we have met with many strange phenomena out here, but they have nothing to do with Baradaki at all. Now get rid of that silly superstition and help us find the boy. You thought that way before coming to an island with giant moth gods and doll-sized priestesses? <laughs> you had an easier time than this guy, for sure. Regardless, this convinces everyone but the priest, too quickly, to cross the barrier, although the dog returns with a note from Yuriko and Gen before they do so. In true Honda fashion, though, the truth of the matter is left ambiguous. Bardagi, or Varan, turns out to be real. The priest desperately waves his branches as he is crushed by his god, imploring, Forgive them! Forgive them! The monster destroys Iwawa village seemingly out of divine wrath. He is impervious to the military's most powerful weapons. However, the monster is identified by scientists as a Varanopod dinosaur. He reacts to flares like a curious animal, which is exploited by the humans using a combination of clever tactics and some super dynamite to kill him. Apparently, Varan has ADHD and is distracted by shiny things. Even the monster's name is a combination of Baradagi Sanjin, or Mountain God, and a dinosaur from the Mesozoic period called Baranoboda. Japanese speakers switch B with V like they do R and L. You learn these things when most of your coworkers are Japanese. Honda's background as a documentary filmmaker is clearly seen in this ambiguity, leaving it to the viewer to decide who is right. While Honda said, quote, this is a work I am not happy with, end quote, and was described by Khaled as, quote, sleepwalking through the endeavor, end quote, because the story offered him no opportunity to, quote, pontificate on matters important to him, such as human resolve and caring relationships, end quote, according to Brothers, it remains something of an underrated classic because it served as an incubator for what would typify the golden age of Toho's tokusatsu. With that, we'll get to our listener feedback. But first, after these messages, we'll be right back. Did you know that Godzilla and Batman almost starred in a movie together? How crazy does that sound? But back in the late 1960s, Toho Studios wanted to follow up King Kong vs. Godzilla with another crossover hit. The movie got as far as a treatment. Now a group of fans are adapting the treatment into a webcomic. You can catch all the action at BatmanMeetsGodzilla.com. Welcome back. Just so you know, we're doing yet another Batman Meets Godzilla t-shirt giveaway. The rules are in the show notes, but just like last month, all you have to do is share this episode on Facebook and Twitter. It can be our post, or you can tag us when you share it yourself. Godspeed! Really, Jimmy? Blast the contractual obligations. And while you're at it, follow my intrepid producer, Jimmy from NASA, on Twitter. He could use some more followers. You happy now? Whatever. Now, 
Speaking of Batman meets Godzilla, I got a message from listener slash podcaster QA Toshi that clarified something I said about that lost project. She writes, Hi Nathan, the Batman meets Godzilla treatment that is being adapted by the fan group is actually William Dozer's, the producer behind the Batman TV show, not Sekizawa's. The Sekizawa script is kind of an urban legend. It was supposed to have been written in 1965, a year before the series premiered, and there's no evidence that it existed. All the sources claiming it was written seem to be written decades after the fact. And then she goes on to say that she actually has a copy of the treatment and was kind enough to send it to me to look over, which I'm really excited to do. So thank you, Kiyoe. That was wonderful. And my apologies for getting something wrong. The fact that it had to be Kiyoe fact-checking me is kind of astonishing because, you know, that's Jimmy's job. A little upset that you got upstaged? Sorry. Now, let's move on to a new letter from Luke Giaconetti, host of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. He writes, Nathan, I had the chance to listen to your mini-analysis of Half Human this morning, and I very much enjoyed the quick commentary. I first saw Half Human last year and covered it over on my podcast, so it was pretty fresh in my mind. The reading of the film as a commentary on Japan's pre-war and wartime fanaticism is a take I had not considered, but certainly does have some merit. I agree that it doesn't completely hold together, but there is some insight there for sure. The broader theme of two different worlds or cultures colliding is one which Honda would revisit several times, especially once he hooked up with Shinichi Sekizawa, who of course utilized South Pacific Islands and their native peoples a lot in his films. It is interesting that Half Human is less sympathetic to the native peoples than later films. I'm thinking specifically of Mothra and Mothra vs. Godzilla, which present the native peoples in a more sympathetic light. Still distrustful of outsiders, but not as xenophobic or violent as the native people in Half Human. Of course, on the side of civilization, the Japanese are represented by two groups. The expedition, which has knowledge slash truth as their goal, and the poachers looking to exploit nature for their own personal gain. Again, a theme which is likely very familiar to Showa-era Godzilla fans. The other aspect of the film which I found intriguing was the fairly global obsession with snowmen and yeti both at large and specifically in pop culture in this era. English mountaineer Eric Shipton found oversized footprints of what was believed to be a yeti during an expedition in the Himalayas in 1951, and in the following years there are several snowmen movies created. The most notable western release is the 1957 Hammer Studios release The Abominable Snowman, written by Nigel Neal, creator of Professor Quatermass. And Half Human fits in right there as well. That Toho and Hammer both did a snowman film within a few years of each other is a delight to me, and once again makes me wish that their co-production Nessie had actually been produced. Injecting myself here a little bit, I totally agree with you. I went to the G-Fest panel that discussed this lost project, and the more I saw of it and the more I heard of it, the more I found myself wanting it to actually get made. Although, if it's any consolation, we did get a kaiju version of the Loch Ness Monster in Godzilla the series from the late 90s. Getting back to his letter. Like its fellow Toho memory hole movie, Prophecies of Nostradamus, I do wish that Toho would allow the film to go into wider circulation and be evaluated on its merits, despite the potentially offensive content. In a market where bald-faced exploitation trash films get loving Blu-ray restoration, it is disappointing that a film like Half Human continues to languish in self-imposed obscurity. Looking forward to more Kong films, as well as alien invasions and anything else planned for the vault. Thanks, Luke. Thank you, Luke, for writing in and for your kind words. And you make a lot of very good points. It still does astonish me that both Prophecies and Half Human don't get releases when I see far inferior films being released on Blu-ray, like you said. 
The fact that I have copies of them in the vault is a small miracle, to be honest. Although, speaking of alien invasions, we'll talk. Maybe you can help me out with that. Hint, hint. Finally, we have a bunch of new iTunes reviews. If you've been following the podcast on social media, I've mentioned a few times that it seemed like the show was getting review-bombed on Apple Podcasts because for every two five-star reviews we got, a one-star rating with no review would appear. Jimmy and I have a theory about what's happening, but since we're not sure, we'll keep it to ourselves. Regardless, here are the new reviews. Our first one comes from username GSPanda. And full disclosure, this is Dallas Mora, the co-creator slash co-host co-administrator, whatever title you want to put on him, of Geek Devotions, a YouTube channel I've worked with from time to time. You'll be seeing more of both Dallas on this show and me on their YouTube channel in the coming months. Most notably, I will be doing a devotional this week on their YouTube channel based on Verandi Unbelievable as a little tie-in to this. It should be up the Friday after this episode drops. Anyway, he writes... This is a fun kaiju podcast complete with a humorous host, producer, and variety of guests. While it's clear everyone involved enjoys kaiju films, they also make it clear they know what they are talking about. I walk away from every episode with something new to think about. Love it and can't wait to hear more from it. Hands down, my favorite kaiju podcast. Thanks, Dallas. I really appreciate hearing that. The next one comes to us from Gretton Conwell, host of Giant Monster BS, which is... Something I feel like I should be checking out. It sounds kind of entertaining. He writes, This podcast is terrific. Do not listen to the negative reviews. Check this podcast out. Short and to the point. I love it. The next one comes to us from username Razor105, which, again, full disclosure, is my buddy slash former colleague Alex McCumbers, who runs the Forever Classic podcast, which talks about video games. And again, I've appeared on his show to talk about kaiju-related things. He writes, This show takes the silly attitude in a lot of Showa classics to spin a creative look at various kaiju films. The host is clearly an academic that considers these important works culturally. Indeed I do, Alex. Indeed I do. And then finally, we have username Hamgoji54, better known as Michael Hamilton, the kaiju groupie. And he writes, I discovered the MIFV through another podcast, The Kaiju Apostle. I feel like I should be reading this line like an old school movie announcer. In a world where there are so many kaiju podcasts to choose from, the MIFV is able to stand out and keep things interesting through insightful commentary and a unique format that is both entertaining and informative. If the kaiju community could take a vote to who belongs on the Mount Rushmore of kaiju podcasts, there is no doubt MIFV would be a worthy contender. You guys have made a fan for life, or at least until the Keylock race does finally emerge to destroy us all. Thanks for all the hard work. Yes, myself and pretty much everybody else who works here is a little nervous about the Disco Space Nuns showing back up and causing a bit more trouble. I mean, they did take over the island once, and all the monsters, and caused a whole heck of a lot of trouble. Just saying. Regardless... That is high praise, and I don't take it lightly. 
not at all. The Mount Rushmore of Kaiju podcast. It is wonderful. I can already tell you what would be a few contenders that I would put on there. First and foremost, it would have to be Kaiju Cast because Kyle Yount and his whole crew there, they just wrapped the show up after it had been on for 200 plus episodes and 10 years. And any Kaiju podcast out there owes so much to what Kyle and the rest of them have done. I've talked with Kyle. He says he wasn't the first Kaiju podcast out there, but he's the one that's lasted the longest so far. He was a trailblazer, and we're all indebted to him. So definitely, I would want him on that Mount Rushmore. So the fact that you want to include our show uh, for such a prestigious honor, I am incredibly grateful for you saying that. Thank you, Michael. Kaiju lovers, if you haven't already, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. The higher our score, the more likely we are to get recommended to iTunes users. Thanks. What do you think of Varan the Unbelievable? Do you like it or is it overrated? Email your thoughts, questions, and disagreements to us to read on next month's minisode. Contact info is in the credits. Speaking of next month, in our next episode, I'll be joined by Daniel DeManna, author and creator of the Godzilla Novelization Project, and my fellow G-Fest panelist, to discuss Peter Jackson's epic 2005 remake of King Kong. For the minisode, I'll be hearkening back to Toho in 1959 with a very different epic, The Three Treasures. It's gonna be a kaiju-sized march. Now, if you'll excuse me and Jimmy, we have a pair of three-hour films to watch and research. Cue credits! Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is the Monster Isla One. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Kowotani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!